Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bench Units podcast. I'm James McSorley and I'm joined as always by Mark Schofield. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Thank you. And we are joined by a guest who just admitted they're on this podcast because when you asked them, they didn't have anywhere else to look. Let me ask you a question, James. If we or when we inevitably create the Bench Units Wheelchair Basketball Hall of Fame, how many surefire first ballot Hall of Famers do we have on that list before our current guest today? I think we have about four so far. And then you get into the guys that aren't wheelchair basketball Hall of Famers, but they're just people that I like that I'd probably put on that list. But yeah, um, not very many. Today's guest ticks both boxes. So we're joined today by Joey Johnson of Wheelchair Basketball Canada. Joey, how's it going, man? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank Thanks you for being here, man. Um, we'll, um, we'll throw you this to open with Joey. So traditionally, the highest scoring bench units guests come from Australia. Um, up until recently, our top three listened episodes were all Australian guests. Um, and then a couple of months ago, we had KU Dundonow on here and she crashed the party. And I think she now sits at number two all time. So by joining us today, you're effectively throwing yourself into what we like to think of part two of the Canada and Australia wheelchair basketball <laughs> rivalry. Uh, if I can give you one hint, the thing that did best for Tom O'Neill Thorne was announcing a return to playing professionally in Europe. So if you want to keep that one up your sleeve, that's sure to boost the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> so can I just announce it and not have to follow through on it? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Once, once we've I can do that. Yeah, I'm coming. Where, where are you playing, James? I want to play there. That's that's where I'm going. Uh, yeah, come to Bilbao. Um, I'm, I'm just waiting account. for a contract offer. That's all. Yeah, you just you just want the ego boost. You want someone to be like, hey, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, I want to feel it. wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's that's universal. That's all right, Joey. Yeah. <laughs> right. Shall we? Go to our usual opening salvo, James. This is yes. finished your bit. All right, Joey. We ask everyone who comes on this podcast the same question. Seems pretty sensible to start in the beginning. So how did you get started in wheelchair basketball? Oh, it's going back a few years now. Um, when I was eight years old, so almost 40 years ago, I was diagnosed with a hip disease called leg perthes, and it's basically a bone degenerative disease in my right hip. Uh, the flow of blood to the head of the femur was restricted, causing the, the joint in the head of the femur to deteriorate, which caused me to lose full range of motion. And uh, I was told I could no, no longer compete in able-bodied sports. So my mom kind of before the days of Google had to do some research the old fashioned way and found out about adaptive sports. And there's a program here where I lived in Winnipeg, um, where it's just a bunch of kids that would come out and, and, and play all kinds of games like tag, uh, British Bulldogs, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they would slowly introduce you to different kinds of sports, tennis, track and field, um, basketball. And ironically enough, when I, when I first started playing basketball, because I was an eight, eight and a half, nine-year-old kid, uh, I hated basketball. They didn't have a minis program back then. So I'm playing with a bunch of grown men trying to throw a ball up to a 10-foot hoop. Couldn't even get it halfway there. And I was thinking, like, this is the stupidest game on the planet. <laughs> like, get me out of here. Um, so I, I did a bunch of other sports. I pushed marathons. I uh, got involved in tennis. Uh, I was doing well with that. But um, before I got my hip disease, I was a big ice hockey player. We call it hockey here, but I know 
globally. <laughs> Everyone else tends to throw the word ice in front of it. Uh, yeah. And I loved it. And I, I think the part that I loved about that was the, the team concept of it, uh, being with the boys, the locker room banter, all that kind of stuff. And wheelchair basketball slowly grew on me because I, I think that was the, the lone sport in the para world at the time that really offered those similarities. Sure. Did you have the... Um because the typical thing we hear from you're obviously a four and a half point player and you're pre predominantly um ambulant and as close to able-bodied as there is in the disabled world did you have the moment of nah i'm not playing a wheelchair sport because i'm not in a wheelchair because that's a, a common refrain we get on here oh absolutely the first time my mom i remember my mom found out about this kids program and it was at the university of winnipeg on, on the court there and she dragged me out and i kind of sat on the sideline folded my arms like no bunch of kids in wheelchair i don't need a wheelchair you know, i'm walking around on crutches at the time i don't need a wheelchair um but i, I credit to the kids and the person running the program they kind of cajoled me into sitting down in the chair and then those competitive juices just started kicking in like the, i'm watching these kids fly around and i'm pushing a tank of a chair i think it was an everest jennings back then oh, wow. one of those folding chairs <laughs> I, I go back a bit um <laughs> And uh, these kids are just like, some of them were in the, the, the modern ultralight quadra chairs. I was one of the first ever sports chairs. And I'm watching them fly around this court. And then the competitiveness in me is like, well, screw you guys. I want to do that too. So you start pushing a little harder. And yeah, so it kind of got me addicted pretty quickly. But there was definitely that moment where I was like, nah, not yeah. for me. Okay. Um, that's 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 really common obviously mark said earlier we get there's like a real divide from like three five and up any basically anyone that can walk the first step is getting them to actually sit down in the chair but so from moving on from that in your early days was there anyone in particular when you started sort of seeing the wider world of wheelchair basketball is there anyone in particular that you looked up to as an inspiration any sort of players you were trying to steal bits from or well, there is a few players now because I got to start so young, I was also pretty small. So my game, I, I was a guard when I first started sure. and I kind of attribute that to um, later on in my career where I had better handles than a lot of centers. and I could actually move with the ball and stuff. But yeah, there are a lot of like Pat Griffin. I remember he took me under his wing at my first few national team camps um, and, and really showed me the ropes. Um, and he was a, a guard. He was a four point guard back in the day, but one of the best shooters I've ever seen play. Um, but internationally, I mean, Dave Kylie, he, he's a legend and, and getting to watch him play in his prime was, uh, you know, every kid's dream at that time. Uh, and Kirk Curtis Bell, an, an American player there that, uh, um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of influences and just locally here, a, a guy by the name of Jake, he's the one who kind of dragged me out to my first basketball practice. Um, so without them, you know, I, I wouldn't have become the player that I, I became and wouldn't have had those opportunities. So, sure. sure. And in terms of the, it's kind of a different thing going, we're going cross continent and back in time here, as you said, but what was the state of kind of the the leagues or the opportunities to actually get out and play competitively in Canada at that point? Because even these days, us being over in Europe, we don't hear anything about, you know, the Canadian league going on. I don't know what the divide was like back in those days or Canada is obviously a massive place. So it's, you know, a flight away to your nearest away game, I imagine. Yeah. Um, I guess opportunities were a little bit more back then they are, than they are right now. Um, 
we, we used to have two things. We'd had the Canadian Wheelchair Basketball League, which I believe was started in the late 80s. And we had conferences. So we'd have like the Western Canada Conference and Ontario Conference of Quebec Conference. Um, and then we also had the Canadian Nationals where each province would put in a team and we would have a true national championships. Um, so I, I had a fair bit of opportunity. But as you see, like I grew up here in Winnipeg and our, our next closest major Canadian city would be Regina and that's about a five-hour drive away from us um, so for, for us you know if I want to get to Toronto on, and I'm driving it's a 24-hour drive and you know picture Canada is like this and that that's about that much of Canada so <laughs> for, for us to get anywhere it, it, it's a challenge so you're flying a lot of places and all of a sudden budgets start skyrocketing because to travel with 10 people plus a coach or whatever it, obviously the cost is there um, but we, we had a lot of tournaments. We were kind of a, a camp-based program back in the day for the national program anyway. And we'd have a lot of tournaments, the Spitfire Challenge. I'm sure you guys have heard of that. Yeah. That yeah. used to be a, you know, world-class tournament and they'd have all kinds of different levels. So there's always an opportunity for no matter where your club was at to go to that tournament and play. And if you're in the top level, you get to compete against some international club teams or even some uh, national teams would put teams in back then. But yeah. Um, it, it was challenging, but we also competed out of the U.S. League as well. The NWBA had a, a few slots open for Canadian clubs. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't involved in some of those teams, but later on, I moved down to the U.S., so solved that problem. Sure. <laughs> well, you, you've jumped ahead on our rundown ever so slightly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw, throw a quick question now purely for my own curiosity. What's happened to the Spitfire Challenge now? Well, it was run by a guy named Michael Brace, and uh, I, I believe he's passed on, but he, he was kind of the, the backbone of the, the Spitfire organization, um, and they, they had, it was a brilliant association where they had a, a rec league, so every Monday night for the greater Toronto area, southern Ontario, um, they would have a, a rec league. I, had, I don't know how many teams they'd have, but probably between four and eight at any given time, and then every Easter, they used to put on the Spitfire Challenge, and I, then I believe it moved to the summertime, but um as anything good in sport usually takes a champion to kind of spearhead it uh once michael kind of passed on i, I don't believe anyone was willing to pick up the the baton and run with it so yeah that, that's a, that's some big shoes man i um, absolutely i was lucky enough i went to spitfire challenge in 2011 i think and the scale of it is for for a kind of non-national idea yeah. sanction tournament, the scale of it is unfathomable. How take a lot of work to put something like that on it. Eh? Like I, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> I love playing at it, but the organizing of it wouldn't yeah. be for me. It's no, that's it, that's amazing. Like thinking now that stuff like that doesn't really happen anymore. Like people who know of tournaments like this can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know it's difficult enough for an actual international federation to organize a world championship right. apparently so like organizing uh organizing shot fired there what? Uh, no never that's uh no that's 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 maybe that's me being empathetic you'll never know right. <laughs> anyway, i'm gonna i'm gonna move myself on here um as a young player did you have that light bulb slash watershed slash whatever metaphor you want moment where you realized oh this could be you know this isn't just me messing around in a wheelchair to get out of the house once an evening like I mean on an evening once a week did you have a moment of like this could be something I actually I, I can recall a couple moments like that now when I first started it was very recreational and I loved it because it was a a sport or a platform if you wish that I could compete with my able-bodied 
friends and my siblings as well. Both my brother and sister were highly involved in wheelchair basketball at one point in their lives. My brother went on to coach the national team and uh, my sister became the executive director for Manitoba wheelchair sports here in Winnipeg. Um, but I remember it was just very recreational and I, I loved it going out, having games, um, playing with friends basically. And then it was, uh, it was an identification camp i believe it would have been around 94 95 we were trying to get what was called canada games canada winter games wheelchair basketball involved with that which is it's like a mini olympics or paralympics um and wheelchair basketball is going to become a part of it and they wanted to know how many athletes we had in the country because i think it was a u23 or u24 event at that time um so i was there and the coach for the university of wisconsin whitewater at the time his name was fred went um was also there because mike frogley who was a student at whitewater at that time uh came up for the camp wow. to help coach and uh, this fred came up to me and said hey what's your plans for school I'm like well i don't know i haven't i, was, I think i was in grade 11 or 12 at the time I'm like, i don't know i haven't really thought of it and you know but kind of taking this one day at a time mm -hmm. and uh, he's like well I, I would like it if you'd come down to the U.S. and play some ball and that was at that moment I'm like oh really I could go somewhere and play some basketball like that, that's interesting and obviously he thought enough of me that you know worthy enough to talk to me to to come play so that was the first moment and then it was uh in university once I, I got down there and started training full-time uh, Frogley became my coach there and uh, I, I realized the possibilities that the sport um, entailed for me where there's opportunities to go to Europe, to go to Australia, to compete um, at the Paralympic level. And uh, it, it was there that I kind of realized my true potential in the game as well. Like I said, I think I was always comfortable just being one of the guys. And uh, I think Frog kind of dragged out of me that uh, I could be more than just one of the guys. I could be one of the best guys mm -hmm. if I actually applied myself to the game. So. I would say those were the two defining moments that uh, kind of stick out in my mind. Yeah. Sure. I find that so interesting that at the beginning of such a long journey in wheelchair basketball, it was like, I, I might be able to go to college for free here. Like right. the amount of guys that, you know, the opportunity to come and play in Europe or whatever, it's just like, Oh, I can get my rent paid. This is pretty cool. And then it kind of goes from there. And like, you know, the fact that like even getting that far and having something that material and concrete, sort of looked after because you're playing a game that you picked up at eight years old like that's that's pretty cool in itself at the time but it's interesting to think about how big a step that was for the person who was and is joey johnson now you know what i mean like yeah, for sure. we've got plenty to talk about coming up next but that being a big moment is super cool but yeah you also answered the next question we had which was going to be how did you get how did you get to college in the u.s but so, so you're, you're you're good at this <laughs> yeah, up for us. Um, so I guess the follow-up question to that is: you obviously you you got directly you know approached and scouted by the um, the coach of Whitewater at the time. How common of a route was this? You know, back back in these days, because obviously uh, we had like Pincho Ortega from Spain on here recently, who spoke about the whole recruiting trip that Alabama put on for him, but. Obviously, this was a slightly different time, you know, no social media, less video footage available and all that stuff. Um, so how how many kind of imports were there to the college scene at this point and what did this do for the competition, I guess? To my knowledge at that time, there weren't a lot. I know uh, there was a few Canadians had, who had gone down there. Um, Mike Frogley, Grant Strobach, and uh, Mike Prescott, I believe, was at the University of Illinois. Um, other than that, I don't believe any other Canadians had 
gone that route. So it, it was kind of a fluke for me. I happened to be at the right place at the right time to get noticed and talk to, to people. The college program and system wasn't nearly as big as it is now. Um, I, I do remember playing at the Spitfire one year and a guy from Texas said, hey, you need to reach out to the coach at the U UTA. He'd be interested in knowing about you and you'd be a great fit there. I never did, obviously, because I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it was a different world. Like you say, like the internet opened up a lot of doors, YouTube, you know, you're getting to watch footage of people. And uh, if I wanted to see someone play, I'd either have to get there or get them to send me a VHS tape of themselves. So it's a different world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And before we move on to your um, next steps of your career, do you have any particular highlights from college ball that you would like to like to tell us about well winning championships is always fun i want yeah. a couple of them there so that'll do it um but looking back i didn't realize at the time how good of a team that we had i was fortunate enough i got to play with a troy Sachs in whitewater yeah. i got to play with jeff glassbrenner in his first couple of years playing there uh, mel jewett eric barber american guys that oh, were wow. international players um, I was just sharing this story with a few of the kids I coach here recently, but it, it, when I realized how good I could be in Whitewater, ironically enough, was a trip down to Nashville and we were playing the Music City Lightning, the Dallas Mavericks, uh, Arkansas Razorbacks were there. So all, all these big guys, I'm talking like the Tim Kazees, Tree Wallers, Reggie Coltons of the world were all playing on these teams and, and they were into, for like a 19, 20 year old kid looking up at these yeah. men. It was pretty intimidating. And it was a trip where Troy Sachs couldn't be there. He had commitments in Australia or something. So he had to fly home with the, the national team. And he was the man for us, right? Like we're talking, this is the mid nineties. Troy's on top of the world here. He's going to the Paralympics and dropping 40 plus points in yeah. a gold medal game, right? Like, like it's nothing. And he could do the same at that in the college level at any given day. So I, I was like in awe just getting to train with this guy, but because he wasn't at this tournament, I had to step up my game and I went out there. I don't think we won a game, but I personally played, phenomenal was competing with these big dogs and that gave me that confidence to to move forward uh, especially internationally because I, I started to get to know more of the international players um by playing in the u.s and uh, the, the co confidence is huge as you guys know playing the game it's you know if you if you don't have that confidence you're, you're going to be useless out there but the minute that you realize you can compete in, on that stage it opens up a lot of doors yeah neither of us have that confidence and that's why we're both <laughs> useless there you go we figured it out thanks joey Thanks for your That's time. You're <laughs> welcome. Is that it? We done? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, this is actually just like an amateur psychology hour. <laughs> We're like, cool. <laughs> got, got everything we need. Um, yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Quick question. I guess you say um, you kind of became a bit more aware of the international scene as you were at college and you got to know some of the players and stuff. How Before you went away to college, how aware were you of kind of the the professional or you know life pursuit of wheelchair basketball in the wider world outside of what you'd been doing in Canada were you aware at that point that there was you know moving to Europe and playing professionally on the table for you or did that kind of materialize as you met more guys well right before I went to college was the summer of 94 when I moved down to the U.S. and that was world championships were in Edmonton that year so I, I was an alternate on the team so they, they called us uh, the shadow squad or something like that there's five or six of us myself James Truer Jamie Borisov or to name a few guys yeah. so we all got out there and trained with the team for about a week and then we got some exhibition games in and I, I played against Mexico and Australia I think so I, I was aware of some of the international going-ons and stuff but I didn't know 
to the extent that wheelchair basketball existed, especially in Europe, especially people getting paid. Now, I had heard rumors, Tree Waller had played in the 80s, I believe it was, in uh, Italy for a number of years, in Cantu, I think. And I heard he was getting a little bit of money to do that and stuff. And at the time, I was like, it was almost like a, a fairy tale, you know, like kind of something so far off in the, the distance that it didn't really resonate with me when, what it truly meant. Um, but it was actually in 2000 at the Summer Games in Sydney, we'd won our first gold medal there. And I was walking around at closing ceremonies and there's a guy, his name is Aino Okunen. He comes walking up to me at closing ceremonies on the field and everyone wanted to take a picture with the medal and everything like that. So I thought that was just another guy who's an amputee and I thought he was just another guy wanting a, a picture. And uh, he came up to me and said, like, hey, you're Joey. I'm like, yeah, yeah, pulling out the medal. Like, here you go, take a picture, whatever. He's like, no, uh, I'm starting up a new team in Wollongong here in Australia for the upcoming season. And you're going to be my import player. I'll send you a contract next week. Give me your email address. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I thought the guy was off his rocker. So I, I gave him my email address. I went back to school and sure enough, because uh, that would have been in like October-ish and he wanted me to come over to Australia the following April, May. Yeah. Um, obviously I couldn't because I was in school, but I did go over it the following May. But yeah, sure enough, the next week I, I got a con uh, contract in the mail and uh, in, my, in my email and uh, a plane ticket like the week after. So I was like, oh. This is cool. It's They're going to pay me money to play. It certainly doesn't help that guy's case that of all the places he could have been starting a team, Wollongong sounds completely made up. <laughs> Fair enough. But I had been to Australia, so I knew that it was a true place. Oh, yeah. Cool. We got you covered. Um, Sorry yeah. to the population of Wollongong. <laughs> um, yeah, we kind of we had a question about your... Um, because I think we spoke to Brad Ness a few months ago and he mentioned your kind of time in Australia. Uh, you've obviously played, you know, you played in the US, Australia, Canada. And as James mentioned, at the moment, particularly, there's a little bit of a, not a pressure on young players, maybe the wrong word, but there's kind of the allure of, you know, you turn 18, you've got some independence, you can head to Europe and start getting paid immediately. So by the time you went abroad to Germany in 2004, you'd kind of played in three different leagues already and matured. And that's maybe something that isn't happening as much now, but do you feel like that slow uh, maturation process did a lot for your game? Oh, a hundred percent. I've talked like when I was working with the British team there, I talked to a lot of the young guys about this. By the time I went to Australia and that was the first, you know, contract that I received I was already 25 years old I'd been involved in the game for you know almost 18 years at that time 17 years so my foundation had been laid I, I went to university and university you're training five six days a week fundamentals is just hammered into you like you're learning your chair skills you're learning your tilts you're learning how to shoot um, so by the time I became a professional player I, I could make an immediate impact on any team that I went to I was physically mature I was mentally mature um, emotionally mature. And I, and I think you had to like playing in Australia, the, the second year I played there, Pat Anderson was down there, Brad, Justin, Sean, Kuhn Janssen was playing down there, Mustafa Jabari. Like we're, we're talking uh, all world class of athletes playing in this yeah. league. And just to throw it out there, my team won. So screw <laughs> the rest of them, right? Uh, uh, yeah, but it, it's phenomenal. It was an awesome league. Like if you didn't bring your A game every single night out, you're going to get beat and beat handily too physically as well like the aussies like that <laughs> oh yeah 
that's not changed. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's another point that came up with Brad is that the Aussie league kind of had its almost like a form of glory in a lot of the top level players seeing it as, you know, oh, we can play our domestic league or whatever it may be. And then we can hop across here for summer. And I think Australia's kind of lost that for all, but it's local players. But I think it would be a really great thing for players all over the world if it was able to get that back to some extent, because A, I don't think moving to Australia and, you know, improving yourself as a person is a terrible thing, but I've also not heard anybody who did go and play over there come back and say anything other than bring your A game because you're going to need it. You know, it's phenomenal. It was a great experience. One of the best experiences of my life. I played two seasons over there with Wollongong and I, I got to play with a young Tristan Knowles, uh, who I got to watch grow into a, a phenomenal player, uh, Brendan Dowells, a former one player, one point player for the uh, Aussie team. Um, just a handful of great young people. And I, I got to mentor some of them, like uh, Sticky, Brett Stibners. I, I got to see in like his first couple of years playing. And I went from watching this guy sitting in an oversized chair, not being able to move to being one of the, the best four point players in the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, yeah, I, I wish... It comes down to dollars and cents down there as well, right? Like Australia is a large country and to travel around, it costs a lot of money to get from, you know, Sydney to Perth. It's, you know, you're not doing it for a couple hundred dollars or anything. And I think that's always a challenge that they have is finding that sponsors getting the money to come in. And Wollongong's done a phenomenal job. They actually have a fan base there, sponsors year after year. But as a league, they need to do that. And I think that's fair to say in any country as a league, if you can get some good dollars coming in you can get yeah. the product out there the, the talent exists on this planet right now and the state of wheelchair basketball right now globally uh, the talent level is by far the highest i've ever seen in my years involved in the game yeah i think obviously the other big barrier to that is that no other national team gets a summer off like right. Aussies don't either but i mean like you're in the country if you're an aussie national team player but you don't like no one from GB or USA or Canada have a summer free to go to Australia. If you're at the level, maybe the sweet spot is like good, but not quite good enough to be involved in national team stuff. But then I don't know how many Aussie teams are sending you emails, but I think that's the big barrier at this point. Like the international calendar is so stacked that like just in Europe, there's a Europeans or a world championships or a Paralympics every yeah. summer at this point. Yeah, you're, you guys you're not wrong. I, I find that since COVID hit too, everything's just been crammed even more, you know, so it's yeah. every, like you got the Commonwealth in there now, the Commonwealth Games. And you, so everything's just condensed on and then until the worlds get pushed back, I guess. I was going to say, I've got November free if there's any games <laughs> on, but uh, I might've had November free anyway. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Um, um, just to... To follow up on one of your points, Joey, about the fact you didn't, uh, you know, sign your first pro contract until you were 25 and uh, an adult, effectively. There's one of the nations where the players aren't particularly far flung right now is the Canadian uh, men's team, who by and large are predominantly in North America still. Um, is that something that is very intentional? you're obviously there as you know part of the coaching staff and whatever is that something you're pleased to see and you're keeping these guys around for development or is that coincidental and it's just a case of guys having lives outside of basketball that keeps them near home 
I think it was intentional, kind of before my time getting back involved in the program. Uh, they wanted to have more of a centralized program, similar to what uh, GB had done there for a number of years. Um, I think they realized that that experiment wasn't getting the returns that they had hoped for. Um, and now that Matteo is the head coach here in Canada, uh, we are starting to encourage more. We, we have a number of athletes in the U.S. college program now in, in that system and some athletes that are slowly starting to trickle back into Europe. And personally, I, I think that's the way to go. When, when you get that competition on a weekly basis, we can't offer that here in Canada at this time. So I think we'd be foolish to not encourage our athletes to head over there. Yeah, yeah. I think the sort of go to college or stick around in a centralized program until you're at a certain age and then go abroad to me seems like the thing that makes sense because I don't know what your experience we'll get onto that soon but I don't know what your experience of playing in Europe was but a lot of people I speak to you know you go to a club and very few of them are interested in what you look like in three years time they're kind of interested in what you look like at 6 p.m on Saturday which obviously that's that's what they're there for. That's what people are paying for. So it makes sense. But I think there's a real downfall if people go abroad too early and you're not 100% on your fundamentals. And then you show up to a team that only care about winning on a week-to-week basis. But yeah, Mark, shall we, shall we, get, on to the, shall we get on to the European club stuff Let's while we're Let's over there? So yeah, Joey, this is obviously... Your move over to Europe was to join Landil in 2004. Um, obviously, coming in to one of the great setups in the wheelchair basketball world in you know the history of the sport, and coming off a second straight gold medal, if I'm not mistaken. Although we'll um, we'll get to that in a little bit. So, why was Landil the move for you at this point? And had there been any other you know steps along the way where you had had an offer and you could have jumped to Europe sooner and you decided time wasn't right, for example? Well, funny story. It was 2003 when I first went there uh, to Germany. And and the story is Patrick and I, really good friends, trained a lot together. But every level that we'd played at, with the exception of the national program, we always competed against each other. We never got to play together. We never got to train together outside of the national team. Uh, Club ball here in Canada, he played with the Twin City Spinners. I played with Manitoba or Winnipeg. Um, College, he played at University of Illinois. I played at the University of Wisconsin. Um, All the way through, go to Australia. He's with Brisbane. I'm with Wollongong. So it was at that time we had just won 2000, our first gold medal in we were thinking we were pretty hot stuff going into the world championships in 2002. We're like, all right, you know, we, we got this and we ended up losing in double overtime in the semifinals to the U S. So that slap of reality kind of like, well, you know what, let's try and do something here. Let's, let's do this. Right. Let's find a team in Europe, make a little bit of money and we'll train together for a whole year leading into uh, Athens and we'll, we'll show the world like what, what we can do. So IWBF at the time had their webpage and you could put out, hey, players interested, teams interested, whatever. So Pat and I put, you know, Joey Johnson, Pat Anderson interested in playing in Europe. And we're thinking, you know, the flood doors are going to open here. We're going to have to filter through. We might have to hire someone to start filtering through all these offers that we're going to get. Like, this is going to be ridiculous. And we got a total of not one offer. Oh, wow. Not a single offer came to us. Was the webpage down or something? (laughs) Well, that, that was as a pair, as a 
having Pat and Joey together. Right. So I had talked to a couple teams in Italy and Pat had talked to Londell and a couple other teams and Londell actually brought him out and played a couple ge- exhibition games or something like that one year. And he's like, this is lovely. I, I, I want to go there. This is going to be a great place for me to train. So we had kind of talked about, it. I'm like, well, what if I go to Italy, you go to Germany. And then like once a month, we'll meet up for a week and we'll train together. Like it's better than what we're doing now. And we'll both be playing games in, in Europe. So that was kind of the plan. I was about to sign a contract with this club in Italy. Pat signed on with Londell. And then it was a uh, Nick Seltinger. He's the national coach for the German team. He was actually a player in Londell at the time. He was an able-bodied 4.5 four, yeah. player. And he decided he was going to step down from playing and focus on being a manager slash he had a career lined up. So he started work and uh, they're like, well, we got to sign another 4.5. And Pat's like, well, wait, you know, I got a guy. I know a guy. <laughs> and they're like, well, I don't think we can afford to bring Joey in as well. And uh, Pat's like, that's fine. Like, we'll, we'll split a contract. So Pat and I split one player contract for that first year in Londell. We, we each made 500 euros a month for that first season. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we shared, we shared a car and we shared a flat. And I, I think, you know, as history shows you, we went over there and we, we, we did pretty well for the first, we played three years there together and I ended up saying for a total of nine, but that's how we ended up in Germany together. That's how Londell got us. And uh, you know, I think the rest is kind of history. I have yeah. never heard that story before, but the number of players like we either know personally or who've like come on here and told us about like haggling over like individual cents and pennies and God knows what else. If we get any more of that, I'm going to be like, Hey, Pat and Joey's one contract between them. Exactly. There's no excuse for anything. It was a very humbling experience. I can tell you that. Cause we were thinking like we were pretty hot stuff at that time. And obviously the rest of Europe didn't feel that way. <laughs> That's so interesting to me because obviously I understand the game isn't financially where it the game wasn't financially where it is now but even then like making you guys split a contract that's a lot like that's well i would have thought we at least as a package deal i thought we would at least get an offer like hey guys we can't afford anything but you know we got 20 grand we'll we'll offer you or whatever whatever it is right like we thought something like that would come but nothing that's I, I can't get my head around that. So. I'm sure some clubs are kicking themselves now. Like, look oh, at yeah. that because, you know, I spent I nine, so. nine seasons over there and I, I'm a committed guy. Like, I committed to Lon Dill and they treated me well over the years. Uh, Pat was there for three years with me and, you know, we won everything we could in those three years. So. Uh, out of interest, where were you going to go in Italy? I had a few, I was talking to a few teams. Uh, Toronto was one. Right. And then uh, they were pretty good. talked to Cantu as well for, for a bit. And then Padova as well was uh, talking to me, but I hadn't really narrowed it down because I was like, what do I do? Where do I go? Should I go to the northern part of Italy? So I'm closer to Germany to make my trip (laughs) with Pat easier. But, you know, thankfully that didn't have to happen. So, well, sure. Um, And over your, over your nine years in Landil, you said your, you said loyalty was important to you. Were there any offers that you were like, oh, I don't know, maybe living there might be cool or maybe this team or (laughs) this, I'm sure numbers, but like, were there any offers? That yeah, you- over, over the years, I won't get into too many details about it, but sure. over the years, I, I got uh, a few offers. And uh, the closest I probably came to leaving was would have been to go down to Porta Torres. They actually flew my wife and I down there for a visit and they wined and dined us. And, you know, it, it was going to be one of my last years in Europe. And I thought, you know, what better place to, to spend my last season than paid holiday? Yeah, that's, I, that's what I was thinking. But Porta Torres and Sassari both do that, where they like, or they like 
work on the business model of being like the accomplished player's retirement home for a season. Where they, <laughs> like, hey, do you want to come down here and have a nice time? No pressure. Um, make, make a little money, sure. Yeah, but that yeah, was the closest I ever came to leaving. I, I talked to a lot of teams over my nine seasons there. Obviously, I signed a few contracts over that time, but yeah. um, you know, I had a family. I had three kids. My eldest son was going to school. My two yeah. little ones were in kindergarten when we left and stuff. So it, it just, you know, having a happy family and that lifestyle that I had in Germany meant more than the extra 5000 I would have made somewhere else. Sure, exactly. And I think at that point, Correct me if I'm wrong. There weren't many clubs that could actually offer you the stability to have a wife and three kids with you. Like, not that I was aware of. I mean, some planning. some clubs made it sound like they were there, but in looking at their history, they'd never had to work with that before. So I'm like, how do you know you're there? And I know Lon Dill had a lot of growing pains just having me there, um, and they learned a lot, like trying to get kids into school and um, yeah. you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So, sure. Um, we could quite honestly, we could do a whole separate podcast talking about your, um, your years at Landale, but we've got a ton to get through. So we'll, um, we'll leave this in your hands, but any high points of your time in Germany that you could point to kind of above the rest? Boy, <laughs> uh, yeah, nine seasons there. The high points, honestly, getting to know some of the fans uh and as you guys know londell's got the best fans in the world bar none they have a fan club they've had a fan club prior to us even getting there um it, it was special like they would they would literally bend over backwards to to help and accommodate and um we still have some dear friends in germany we've got to get back there soon to visit but uh, the high points i mean i i've played there nine seasons i won eight german championships eight uh, german cups I played in eight Champions Cup finals and won five of them. So I went there and I, I remember joking with some of the fans like, hey, I didn't come here to lose. And they're like, oh, everyone loses. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what I came here to do. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I, I kind of left my legacy there and uh, the wins speak for themselves. Definitely. The, probably an impossible question to throw you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you know of anyone who has more Champions Cup medals that, or gold medals than you do? I honestly, I don't, um, especially as an import player. I would, you know, I toot my own horn now and say, like, I think I've been the most <laughs> successful import player ever. We're, worth every 500 euros I made over there. So. <laughs> and then some, I would say, yeah. probably. Right. Shall we take this international then? We're going to grill you on your time with the Canadian men's team. Um, Let's do it. There is a lot of stuff to get through here, so we're going to rattle through. So debut with Canada in 1995 at the qualifiers for Paralympics. By the way, shout out to the Wheelchair Basketball Canada website who have made researching for this. <laughs> yeah. They, they love championing their players' accomplishments, and I wish more national teams did it. But what was your kind of – your first appearance for Canada, what was your – takeaway of the international level when you experienced it for the first time um boy <clears throat> going back a few years trying to remember here <laughs> it, 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 i remember it being a great i was a young kid at the time right like uh 19 20 years old i think i was 19 at that trip and you, you think you know everything as every 19 year old does but then when you get there and you're seeing some of these uh players you know, it, it, it was 
just fun being on the same court as some of these players, um, not understanding at that time how good some of these players were in their heyday. But looking back over my career, like I haven't gotten to play it against some of them. Um, you know, it was great. But I remember at that tournament realizing that uh, internationally, like I, I could, I was good. Like, I was like, I, I can do this. These guys can't stop me. I, I can get get in and score when I want kind of thing. Um, but then also being very humble, like I'd have games where was, I can't remember his name, the big guy, single leg amp from Argentina. And I'm talking like big, big man. Um, but he, he packed the crap out of me one time. <laughs> you, know, you go from feeling like the big kid on the block to, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was fun. And we, and we won that tournament. Uh, the U.S. wasn't there because they were hosting in 96, so they didn't have to qualify. Sure. But it was, uh, it was you know, anytime you get to put on your country's jersey that's uh it's a special feeling and that was kind of the first time for me to to do that and um you know nothing takes the place of the first exactly uh so moving on from that slightly a question that i thought was interesting so obviously you went to the paralympics the year after that in 96 and you won junior worlds in 97 (laughs) did you or could any could you guys or internally or did anyone else feel like there was something building for the next sort of obviously you guys had 15 years of success off the back of that was that something that you thought could be happening or did you hear people talking about that from outside or were you just showing up to play basketball Uh, it was a little bit of just showing up and playing ball because I was in love with the game at that time and I, I was like an ignorant kid that just you know put a ball in my hands put me on a court and I would just play I didn't care who was there kind of thing but it was uh right after 96 uh, so we finished fifth at the Paralympics. And I was the youngest guy in the team. And uh, we went into a training camp and it was in the, the summer of, so May of 97 that Frogley had t- taken over as the head coach for the Canadian men's team. And we had a training camp and that's when I, um, yeah, I, I'd met Pat a few times and stuff, but that was the first time I really got to play with Pat on the court. And the chemistry was almost instant where we, we just fed off each other. Like I was able to throw these long passes to him and he, he's, he could finish anything right with his shooting ability so it was it was there that thinking because this is in may and i think the world juniors were in august of that summer like wow yeah. like we we have we have a squad like we could do something here and yeah. there's a bunch of complimentary pieces there like travis garrett a kid i grew up with here in manitoba uh, john burns um you know, we, we had a, a decent team did i think you know winning gold medals at the paralympics everyone dreams of it i think but the reality is do you ever think you're going to truly do it i don't know if at that time i I believed we were going to i knew we were going to have fun and trying to do it um but it was kind of after 2000 like i said where our heads got real big and we knew that we were good (laughs) it it took the u.s beat us in double overtime to bring us back to reality but yeah the um the U.S. beating you guys, they went, went on to win that world championship. So that was 2002 in, in Japan, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, right. So you guys you guys came back, you know, two years later at the next world event in Athens and you ended up repeating as gold medalists. But you guys have obviously been through that four-year journey at that point from the, the high of winning in Sydney to then, like you say, having having it taken away from you by the U.S. in double overtime. So what was the kind of motivation like heading into Athens? Was it, you know, pressure to repeat or repeat as Paralympic champions or, you know, motivation to 
prove the US that you know they they might have got you, but you guys were were the dominant force still. Uh, repeat for me anyway would have been low on the list of the motivators, uh, beating like losing to the Americans, like I said, and I think that kind of showed a, a crack in our armor to the world that hey the, the Canadians can be beat. Um, because at, at the Paralympics, like we we went on a, a run. 2000, we we didn't lose a game. 04, we didn't lose a game. 08, we lost one game. And 2012, we didn't lose a game. Yeah. So our, our record at that level was pretty good. And to be exposed at the World Championships that, hey, these guys are vulnerable and they can be beat, uh, that was the motivation I had. I remember Australia beat us the summer leading into Athens, too, at the uh, Roosevelt Cup in Georgia. And never forget, like they had cigars out and drinking. It was, it was a, always a party after this tournament and stuff, but we took it as, you know, they're, they're, they're rubbing salt in the wounds here. Like they just beat us. And so going into Athens, we, that, that was the fuel for the fire there. Like no more losing. All right. We're going to try and raise the bar to another level here. And I, I think we did that. I mean, the games in Athens were pretty special. We had a great group there, but I, I think our closest game was something like 17, 16 points or something like that. And I think that was the gold medal game. Like we were pressing teams early on and we would gap them by 20, 30 points by the end of the first quarter. And then, you know, play the bench for the rest of the game. Sure. So we have written down here, but I feel like the answer is yes. By this point, you were obviously, you guys as a team, were aware that there was a rivalry with Australia. Like it wasn't something that was brewing at this point. It was fully like, okay, this is one and two in the world in some order at any point. Like you guys came into tournaments knowing that, and I'm sure they did the same, right? Absolutely. Um, and it always helps because as you guys know, the world of wheelchair basketball is a small community. So you yeah. get to know these guys on a personal level and you can love them or hate them. And I had a, you know, mixed bag of nuts with that, with the Aussie players, a lot of them I absolutely love, but when we got on the court, I couldn't stand them. Sure. <laughs> um, but I respected them always. And uh, I, I think it's a testament to both countries, you know, 96 Australia was in that gold medal game, you know, 2000 Canada was in that gold medal game. And then for the next three, it was Australia and Canada in there. And to have a run like that shows, well, obviously a rivalry is going to brew because yeah. one of you has to lose. Yeah. <laughs> and, you don't uh, get a choice. Like you're going to exactly. see these guys. So, so yeah. yeah, it was fun though. I mean, I, I look back at those days and the, the, the battles like Justin and I, or Brad and I would have on that court. I, it could be bloodbath, but afterwards we're always up for having a beer together. So yeah, it was of course. Worth it. I think, I think one thing that was really interesting with the, um, Canada and Australia, like the, the glory years of that rivalry, I guess, is there's, bearing in mind, there's not a huge amount of video of many of these games pre-London because, you know, finding any wheelchair basketball footage from pre-2010, yeah. you're probably about as likely to find footage of Bigfoot. But Yeah, Beijing finals on YouTube if anyone wants to watch it. So it is. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there is, the styles of play between yourself and Australia were relatively similar in terms of, yourself and Brad being a clear matchup, uh, Justin and Pat both doing the kind of point forward hybrid role. Um, but there's a very different way that the two teams carry themselves in kind of Australia being quite loud and brash and in your face. And there's kind of a, not a lack of intensity, but a, a stoic nature to the Canadian team. I don't know if that was something that you guys if that was just who you were as people, uh, obviously Pat's famously, you know, calm and collected at all times. And if that 
radiates or if that was kind of a deliberate counter to the Aussie tactics? No, I, I honestly, I believe it's kind of a cultural thing. You know, you look at the Aussies in any sport, they're loud, they're obnoxious, they're in your face. Uh, Canadians, we've always just been more of the quiet, humble, you know, stay behind the scenes kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I believe it that embodies the culture of Canada and the culture of Australia so well was the wheelchair basketball battles over the years. Um, we're going to throw you a quote from Brad Ness when we spoke to him. So this was regarding the Canada and Australia rivalry. And I actually didn't know that they'd beaten you guys at the Roosevelt cup, but Brad's words were 2000 and 2004. We had no business beating Canada. Did that feel like that to you guys at the time or were you guys kind of looking over your shoulder for them? No, I, I, I agree with them a, a little bit, but that was, could be um, just more our overconfidence in ourselves at that time. Um, like we, to be the best, you have to beat the best and you have to border that cockiness, you know, um, confidence, cockiness, it's a fine line. And if you don't have it, you're not going to be successful. So going into 2004, I, I believe we felt we were the best team on the planet, bar none. But the beautiful part about sport is you have to go out there and prove it. And so that was our motivation, really. Like we wanted to show the rest of the world what we already knew. Um, so we weren't overlooking anyone. Like we knew Australia could beat us because they had done it just a couple months prior to the Athens. But without them being us there, would we have had the success we had in Athens? Possibly, but I don't know if it would have been the, the, to the extent that we had it. Like, I don't know if we would have laid the boots to teams and beat every team by 20 to 30 points in every game kind of thing. It might have squeaked out a few five to 10 point wins or something like that. But Yeah, definitely. So when you get to Beijing and they beat you in that final, was it a case of them improving? Did you guys do something differently or how do you see that game in the sort of tapestry of Canada and Australia finals like what happened there well it's interesting because the part of the career I was at and I know I trained a lot with Pat leading into that and I know he was similar to myself <clears throat> the only reason I really went to Beijing was for that lure of winning three in a row and no men's team had done that at that point and we we're like you know what Let, let's go there and uh, do this I could have happily have walked away from basketball after 2006 mm -hmm. and because I'd done it all at that point uh, from international basketball, I'd say I was still really having fun at the club level, but the travel, having a young family and stuff and traveling, living in Europe, playing for team Canada, it's a lot of travel. Yeah. Um, and I know Pat was kind of getting burnt out as well. And uh, so I, I give all the credit in the world to Australia because we had beat them and I'm sure that was building on them and starting to weigh on their shoulders, their hunger for that Paralympics was greater than ours. And like I said, going into 2004, we wanted to show that we were the best and we were going to lay the boost to everyone. 2008, it was a different mentality. It was almost, let's just get through this already. <laughs> you know, like yeah. How much longer before? And then for us to have that semifinal game against the US, another double overtime game, a game we probably shouldn't have won. Pat pulled out a few heroic shots at the end there, and uh, that drained us. I remember I took an ice bath after that, and it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning by the time I got back to the village, and we had to play the finals the next day kind of thing, and I was I was spent. Like, I, I could have slept for 24 hours. If I would have been allowed to, I guarantee I, I would have. Like, I was yeah. mentally 
mentally, physically just exhausted. So I, I look at that as a missed opportunity for us because I believe we had the opportunities to beat Australia, but their execution, their hunger was just greater than ours at that time. And, and that's, you know, the transition in sport, right? Yeah, you have the top dog and you got that target on your back. And if you don't come prepared, you're going to get knocked off. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I've never heard um, any alluding to the idea that you could have happily walked away, but you obviously then came back for, um, obviously Pat took a hiatus post Beijing, right? And missed the 2010 world. Um, I think you stuck with it all the way through and you were still back in 2012. So had you guys won gold at Beijing, you presumably would have retired following that. Am I right in saying that? A hundred percent. Right. Um, so I, ironically enough, I did compete at the Worlds and we had a coaching change at that time. Frogley stepped down and Jerry Tonello had taken over. And I was still in um, living in Wetzlar, Londell at the time. And uh, I, I remember I called up Jerry and said, Jerry, I think I'm done. I, I don't want to come to training camp and all this. And so he started spinning all these, well, how about we do this? And you still play like, don't come to training camp, just come to the tournament, do this. Do. And I'm like, no, I'd rather just walk away. And he's like, well, do me a favor, call up the guys the veterans on the team, so like David Ings, Dave Durapose, um, guys like that, give them a call and, and, and run this by them and see how they feel if they'd be okay with you just showing up. So I did that and they're all like, no, no, we want you to play. So can you uh, please come back and play? So I, I did, I stuck it out. Um, my motivation wasn't great going into 2010. I didn't want to lose, don't get me wrong. I still trained a fair bit, but I was definitely on the downhill side of uh, my career. Um, but I do credit 2010 us losing to Italy in that quarterfinal a game we should never have lost and I, it was a bad shooting performance by us that lost us that game fueled my energy to come back for 2012 that's the only reason I stuck around for 2012 was I'm not ending my international career on a seventh place finish and you know screw this I'm coming back I don't care if it's a fifth place finish I'm not finishing on, on seven sure. So that, that motivated, and then it helped that Pat decided to come back and everything like that as well. So sure. So you so. did it. So that's that's the next bit. You did it historically. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> so in the kind of the London 2012 was effectively the the winner take all against Australia, with you guys having split the previous round. By this point, you know you alluded to it being a a small world, and you guys had obviously played each other a bunch of times. But how, how had the two teams, Canada and Australia, kind of evolved, developed, you know, in general and specifically in terms of the matchup against each other? How different was the look in 2012 versus what it had been in Athens, for example? Well, there's obviously some personnel changes on the squads, but I, I think the main characters were all the same and we knew each other so well by this time. I, I mean, like I said, Brad, I consider a great friend. Uh, love hanging out with the guy when we step on that court against each other can't stand the guy i rather run him over than even talk to him kind of thing but that that was the battles that we had right and you know I, i've stayed a week at brad's house in perth uh, when i played in australia and stuff i absolutely love the guy to death but it was that hatred and it, it just grew over that decade of playing each other and justin was the same way i mean i've had a few beers with justin outside the game but on that court i've never met a dirtier basketball player that you want to just take out back and pummel but he got the job done and you know he was phenomenal I, I remember at the world championships of 2010 he was by far the best player in the world at that yeah. time 
all around. Uh, he had that, that one game against the U.S. I think it was like 19 for 19 or something crazy like that from the free throw line. And you, you're talking wheelchair basketball here. If you get a 60% shooter from the free throw line, you, you got something special there, right? And this guy's going out there and putting up 20 points from the line at 100%. Like, who does yeah. that? But it just made me hate him even more on the court. I'm like, geez, doesn't this guy miss, you know? And um, Yeah, so I, I, like I said, I think... There was some change, but the motivation, the the hatred, that rivalry, it, it, it was real. And they, they could have put their junior squad out there. I think that <laughs> you're still seeing red when they come on the court. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't matter at that point. Um, we'll give you another Brad Ness quote. So he said, Beijing and London probably balanced each other out. We were better in London than we had been in Beijing, but we'd lit a fire in them by beating them four years before. So what Brad's effectively saying is, I think the Aussies believe had they not got you guys in Beijing like they did, they would have ultimately got you in London. So do you agree with that or do you think? Um, I can't disagree with that. I've talked to Brett Stibners about this. Brett's another good friend of mine from Australia. And uh, we talked to LinkedIn. He's like, he, he felt that we were a better team in Beijing and that we probably should have won just talent and performance wise. Um, and then London, he felt like they were the top dog. And they were, obviously. They'd won the, the previous Paralympics, previous Worlds coming in there. Um, so, yeah, I can't disagree with it. I mean, there's a reason we play the game, so you got to yeah. step on that court and show it. But I, I could see it because, like I said, if we would have won Beijing, I wouldn't have been in London. So exactly. that, that changes the whole dynamics of the Canadian team. As 2014 showed, you know, when all our veteran players stepped away, Canada yeah. took a bit of a dip there. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I would agree with them. Like it, it was a very even, evenly set match um, all the way through, in my opinion. Like the, the Aussies were just as good a team as us. And it, it came down to little details on in the game that uh, we executed a little bit better for a like stretch of, say, three minutes that changed the game kind of thing that pulled out wins for us or they did it in 2008. Sure. Sure. All right. Over the course of your international career, do you have any team Canada teammates that you feel like don't get enough credit historically or are underrated? Oh, absolutely. Two that jump out in my head right now are Richard Peter, 2.5 bear, um, world-class phenomenal. He can, play the game inside he could play the game outside and it was always I, I mean my name gets thrown around a bit but you know team canada's pat's team right like but i think that's what made us effective is we weren't in it for the personal glory we were in it for our team to win gold medals so if that meant i had to you know at the club level i could go out there and score 50 points with my club team you know be oh that's great come the national team all i had to do was score 10 points yeah and get pat open you know, mm-hmm. that was my job. And same with Bear. Like, Bear could pick up the scraps, score his 10, 15 points, and get Pat open. And so we knew what it took for us to win, to be successful. And why would you tinker with that? Why would you mess with it? So, but Bear, Richard Peter, is by far one of the most unheralded athletes I've ever played with. Um, and then Jamie Borisov, one of our one-point players there. Probably the smartest basketball player I've ever played with. You, we called him the professor. Like, he could just think the game faster than anybody I've ever seen understand the the little nuances of it the the picking the defensively just where we should be at all times Jamie as a one-point player could shut down a four or five in the half-court game for you know five to seven seconds which is unheard of really yeah Uh, um, and and we had that confidence in him and then 
you know, would send the help when needed, but by far those two guys, I would say. And then to throw in a third one, Dave Durapo, phenomenal player, uh, one of the best shooters to ever play the game, but as a three, five, just never fit into a lineup for us. Yeah. And so people around the world didn't truly get to see Dave at his best because he just didn't, you know, we had me, Pat, Bear, that took up all the points. So he, yeah. he was the guy stuck at the end of the bench. But Yeah, I think it's funny you mentioned because we were talking Spitfire tournament earlier and um, the Spitfire that I was at, I think you guys may have had some chair damage or something to that effect. And Durapo played in place of you know, one of your big, it might have been David Eng or something. So he yeah. was the next big off the bench, or high pointer off the bench. And he came in and drained a handful of threes in like the span of, exactly. The, it was against the USA. And it was like, oh, right, this guy is like, well, he's pretty a, good. <laughs> Three point shooting specialist who never plays. <laughs> it's just yeah. bizarre. But yeah, we've, um, We've got kind of one last point, Joey, before we get to listener questions. Uh, we just, we've not really talked about Pat a whole lot uh, because obviously this is about getting you in here and hearing your story, but yourself and Pat are kind of a partnership the likes of which the wheelchair basketball world has never really seen. So we were thinking about the way we described it when we were prepping for this episode between ourselves was you guys were effectively two era-defining players, for want of a better term, who also happen to be perfect compliments. How often two of those people come from the same nation? I would not even like to guess, but you mentioned kind of how effortless your chemistry was when you first started playing together. But how did it evolve over time, if it needed to at all? Or, you know, were you guys just clicking right from the off? And do you occasionally look back at yours or Pat's career and wonder, you know, what could have been different if you guys had heralded from different countries, for example? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it would have been fun if he'd come from a different country because I would have played against him a lot. And I loved that. As I said before, to, to be the best, you got to beat the best. And that's how I always viewed Pat. Um, by far the best player I've ever seen play this game but I love to go against them. And the times I got the better of them, yeah, I, I'd let them know about it. Um, but as far as our evolution on the court, it's, you know, we, we got to grow and mature a lot together. I, and I, I can remember some very immature moments um, off the court doing things that, you know, high performance athletes probably shouldn't be doing. And, uh, but growing into that and learning what it took to win and learning what it took to stay on top because staying on top, in my opinion, is way harder than it is to get there because getting there, it's that you have that motivation. You see that guy in front of you, you see that team that's on top of you already, but when you're on top, the view is crystal clear. You're just looking around like, okay, what's next. Um, so we got to grow with that, but it, it's hard not to get a chemistry with Pat. And like I say, I'm a, I'm a very humble player. I don't need the glory. I don't need the stats. I just need wins. And I think my career kind of a, is a testament to that. Um, I might not have been the highest averaging scoring player to ever play in Londell, but the winning percentage that the team had when I was on that court probably, you know, can't be surpassed by anyone. Um, and that means a lot more to me w winning championships. I would do if I, I had to fill up water bottles for our team to win, I would do that. I wouldn't be happy with it. And I always tell this to kids all the time. You don't have to like the role that you're given, but if you don't like it, do something to change it, become a better shooter, become a faster pusher, do something to change it. But at any given time, accept the role that you're given and be the best you can be at it. And then slowly grow from there. 
And I, I think I did that with my time with the national team. I, I be, was a bench player in 96. I, I saw the court maybe three to five minutes a game to 2000 becoming a starter to you know, 2004 becoming a mainstay when, you know, we got to dominate the, the world for a few years there. Sure. Yeah. And do you think the double four five model still works in the modern game or have teams got too smart that playing against two one pointers? Well, I've always said this, um, like our 2010 team, a lot of people attribute our, our lack of success because Pat wasn't there. But what people don't realize is we lost both our one pointers from 2008, Jamie and Stouty. And yeah, you need quality one pointers to make a four or five lineup work. Now, Pat and I could fill in for a lot of deficiencies that some people might have out there with our quickness, our athleticism, our size. Um, but having Jamie and Stouty on the court with us at any given time, and then Bear as our third, yeah, we, we didn't have those deficiencies to cover. So we got to just be star players out there and Pat could just run amok doing his thing, not having to worry about what's going on behind him because he knew that was being taken care of. So to answer your question, I think the game has turned a bit to a, more to a mid-class game. Um, I think classifications played a part in that a bit though. I, I think newer athletes to the game are getting classed very differently than they were when I was younger. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it could still work, but you need the right complement of the four fives and the right complement of ones to make it work. Yeah, completely sure. agree. Uh, I think to kind of bring that full circle, that's effectively what the Canada um, Australia rivalry was about in a lot of ways is that you guys both, sure. both played two four fives, but also the ones on both sides were absolutely rock solid. Uh, World class, both both sides, yeah. Okay, shall we hit a handful of questions from our listeners? All right, so the first question that we have sent in is the question that I asked you on a bus in Birmingham that started this whole thing off, basically. Um, Mendel Updorth has written in, and ask, do you think people now underestimate you and how good your generation were? The first part of that is the question I asked you. But yeah, do you think people underestimate you and how good your generation were? Well, I, I think it's a great question, um, but I think it's natural for the younger generations to over, always overlook the older generations. I kind of alluded that to when I was growing up. You know, I, I'd take the court with a Dave Kiley and I'd hear how good he was and stuff like that. And you, you don't appreciate it until you start watching some video or seeing some stats and some of the stuff that he did and Curtis Bell did. And then they're like, holy smokes, like these guys are absolute legends of the game. The game evolved, obviously. Equipment's evolved. Um, opportunities to train has evolved. So I think it's kind of a natural thing to, to overlook. Um, personally, it doesn't bother me if people overlook me. I know what I did. I know my teammates appreciate what I did. And that's really all that matters to me. If some, you know, 13 year old kid nowadays doesn't appreciate what Joey Johnson did in his career, then you know, so be it. My life will go on. <laughs> that's really interesting because I think a lot of the all timers in the game of wheelchair basketball don't really mind that. Well, they at least aren't really say they don't really mind that young kids maybe don't know anyone pre-2012. Um, and it's weird. There's like that middle ground of like people like me and Mark who are 27, 28 years old and are like, what do you, 
what do you mean you don't know who this guy is or you don't know how good this guy was? It's funny, like, w- like I probably would get more upset about that than you would with yeah. someone talking about you. But. Well, it's fair, though, because I, I remember getting upset when some kids don't know the generation on top of me. I'm like, what do you mean? I was talking to some young Canadian kids, short little story here for you, um, and Reg McClellan, who played on our national team for years, um, he's a two-point player, but he, he helped found the Alberta Northern Lights. He helped start Wheelchair Basketball Canada. Like I'm talking like he's a pioneer builder, yeah. player, mentor in that. And he runs a, a medical device. He sells um, RGK chairs and stuff like that in, out of the Toronto area. And I was talking to some of these guys and, and that's how they knew him. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about the chair guy. I'm like, no, I'm talking about Reg. Like he, the grandfather of wheelchair basketball here in Canada. What are you talking about? Yeah. That's crazy. I think it's so important to know what comes before you, even just as a player. Like I heard a quote and it wasn't in terms of wheelchair basketball. It was in terms of something completely different, but um, it was, you have to be able to imitate before you can innovate. Like so many good players start off just stealing stuff that they've seen on YouTube. Like you, like you're doing yourself a disservice as a player, not, I know it's easier to sit in 2022 and watch 2012 than it is, to sit in 2012 and watch 2002 obviously i understand that and we're very lucky but i don't know people who don't know anything about the world of wheelchair basketball while trying to come up in it that always freaks me out a little bit maybe just as someone who doesn't ever get bored watching games but all right next question mark yep so this one says what aspect of coaching do you think is relatively underdeveloped in our sport Oh, good one. Um, it's tough to get good coaches in wheelchair basketball just because of the numbers game. I think in the running game, you know, there's millions of kids globally playing while well, we don't have that luxury in wheelchair basketball um, and to find a coach to, and you usually have to start off volunteering time, which is always difficult in people's lives. Um, but I would say just getting the repetition and learning the game itself. So you, you can get, some pedestrian coach coming in and having all the best drills and stuff that just don't apply to the wheelchair game Um, like picking mechanics pushing mechanics unless you get in a chair and start learning and figuring that out yourself very hard to teach a generation of kids on how to go about doing that 100 percent that leads in flawlessly to our next question, James. Yeah, another question from Mendel. Uh, what's your favorite lesser-known drill? Oh, boy. Scrimmage is always my favorite drill. There you go. Yeah, as long as you've got 10, just roll the ball. It's pretty right. well-known, though, so I don't yeah. know. Um, the, the things that you can work on fundamentals that you can do by yourself. And I remember being one of the first athletes in our sport to tilt. Troy Sachs was the first. Um, but when he brought that back to Whitewater and I started tilting, so you, you can do that on your own. So the lesser known drills, I would say anything you can do on your own, that's going to make you better ball handling, getting shots up, um, tilting chair skills, all, all those kind of things. Cause that's the foundation of you as a player the tactical stuff will come with experience and wheelchair basketball, the more experience you have, I think the easier the game gets. Um, but yeah, you, you, if you don't have a good foundation, I, I tell people this to, to be a, 
an international player, I, I feel you need to have one of these three things. There's kind of a fourth fringe one, but um, if you have size, you can be an international player. If you're the biggest guy in the court, like if you're a Chem from Turkey there, like yeah. there, there's a spot for you on a team because you, you, you're bigger than everybody. Um, if you have speed, if you have world-class speed, you're just you know blazing saddles out there kind of speed you, you could have a spot on an international team and the last one is the shooting ability if, if you have a world-class shot and you can pop threes like uh you know jake williams kind of just going out there knocking them down left right and center there's going to be a spot for you now if you have two of those three attributes i think you can be an impact player internationally and if you have three of the three you're like a pat anderson right you're world class you can dominate the game you're just going out there and then the fourth one the fringe one i always say is uh the iq but that's an experience thing and i think the more you do it the sports iq the the, the brains behind why you're doing something because you could have the fastest guy in the world but if he doesn't understand how to use that speed and creating opportunities for himself or his teammates no, you're just pushing circles. You might as well go yeah, on track. Exactly. <laughs> that always reminds me of like, this is a really obscure reference to finish off and I probably shouldn't, but I've started this sentence, so I'll finish it. But <laughs> there's that that stupid bit in The Simpsons where Lenny's like, wow, I'm making record time. If only I had somewhere to be. And I kind of like, there's a lot of guys that can push and they're like, hey, I can get wherever I'm going faster Absolutely. than this person. But I've, it doesn't matter if you don't know where your destination is, man. Like, this is me, but like, it doesn't matter if you don't know where you're going. So All true. right. Sure. Um, okay, so we've got a question from a fellow Canadian. This is from Katie Dandenau, who says, most useful piece of advice you received for performing in big moments? Oh, good question, Katie. Um, I, I think, and it's a bit of a cliche, but you have to enjoy the moment. Um, I know... Stepping on the court in front of 20,000 people playing for a gold medal, there's that perceived, there's a perception of all this pressure, like, oh my goodness. And a lot of people start thinking of failing and um, all the things that could go wrong. And I, I've always had the mentality of changing it. Like the butterflies people get before a game, I, I love that feeling because nothing in life gives you that feeling and to me it's just energy and i was able to use it to go out there and perform at a higher level than i i, I normally could but when i was a young kid and i remember i was at a spitfire tournament i was talking to one of our older players there and uh, he's like enjoy this joey like th this is a, a, a going to be a journey for you but it's going to be over really quickly like you're going to look back someday and say you know what the hell happened where'd the years go and i'm like at the time you know you're 17 years old or whatever like yeah yeah whatever old timer keep quiet <laughs> i'm trying to shoot here um but now you know, i'm a 47 year old man and i look back at my career that's taken me all over the world to competing in five paralympic games and i'm like what the hell happened <laughs> you know like uh i can't believe it's over just sitting here holding all my gold medals yeah exactly I, what i can't hear you <laughs> um but yeah it, it happens quickly and i could say gold medal games i mean james you played in one at the world championship it, it, you, i didn't you, play i was you, there you, well you, you existed for it anyway <laughs> um 
but it happens so quick. Like you, you, there's so much going on, especially when you're playing because the, the technical tactical stuff that you know, you're trying to remember the execution that you're doing all those hours of work that you put in. And even if you're sitting on the bench, you're there supporting your teammates. You're trying to give them that same feedback. You're trying to support them. Yeah. And then you, you look back and you know, that was 2018 and we're in 2022 already. Right. Like what, that was four years ago that that happened. I sure it seems like yesterday to you. Well, I say the same thing about my 95 experience. You know, wow. I, I feel like I just got there and, 95 was a couple decades ago already okay last one take some james uh last question from neil pratt uh when are we going to get that beer let's do it sooner than later can't wait okay i i assume it's when one of you crosses the atlantic ocean like i, I guess that's unless that's it's a virtual one that's gonna have to happen yeah oh god that's very covid we can't do that we can't go back to that <laughs> all right well that's the end of the questions and therefore the end of the podcast so joey thank you so much for being here thank you for your time this was great i appreciate it guys thank you thank you very much man and you're welcome back anytime perfect let me know and for everyone listening thank you very much for listening uh we'll be back in a couple of days with another weekly roundup so we'll talk to you then take it easy bye-bye peace